If you want to be able to draw the greatest talent that's out there, they're saying loud and clear, freedom, autonomy, and independence is the biggest part of their compensation stack that was used to be a nice to have. Now it's right there next to base and bonus is freedom, autonomy, flexibility, when and where I can do my stuff. So let's learn how we can optimize that and start to come to the table with, let's look at some other organizations that are experiencing some success. The shortfall in the cell, Lars, is honestly, there is no benchmark now. And I'm trying to tell this to organizations, stop trying to benchmark. No one's figured it out yet. Now you want to be the benchmark. That was Cadigan Talent Ventures talent hacker and advisor, Steve Cadigan. In this episode, Steve and I sit down and talk about his new book, WorkQuake, his experience scaling LinkedIn from 400 to 4,000 employees, and all things new world of work. And we'll be right back with that conversation after a brief word from our sponsor. It's time to let go of past perceptions of HR. Amplify is a new model of agency designed from the ground up to support business and people leaders navigate the new world of work. We do that through two platforms. Our HR executive search practice is a new model of agency that moves away from traditional search models with our flat fee structure and advisory on the front and back end to help our clients attract and retain transformational people leaders. Our Amplify Accelerator is a unique platform to support continuous learning and build readiness, capability, and global networks for today's people leaders through cohorts, community, and resources to support their growth. Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com. Now, onto the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Redefining HR. I'm your host, Lars Schmidt, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Steve Cadigan. Steve is an author, he is a talent hacker and advisor for Cadigan Talent Ventures, and he's a lot more. And over the next 30 minutes, we're going to be getting into a lot of that and the uh, journey of writing a book and so much more. So Steve, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I'd love to have you just open with an introduction. Sure, sure. Well, it's great to be here, Lars. And man, I can't imagine a more dynamic time for us to be talking about the future of work, what's going on. And uh, it has been over the last two and a half years, probably the most exciting time for me uh, and the work that I do helping leaders and organizations rethink uh, building better talent strategies. And I, I know that you're in the same universe. Um, and we were talking off air just how um, dramatically fun it's been, uh, but also really hard for a lot of organizations. Yeah, I mean, it's such it's such a dynamic time. Um, and I think, you know, we, we both have the the benefit of kind of being on the outside looking in, right? We're no longer in operator roles uh, ourselves. So we can, uh, you know, we can look at it through that lens, uh, which, you know, allows us to kind of maximize the good and the potential because we're not necessarily as directly impacted by by the negative and hardship and burnout that, uh, you know, our, our CPO colleagues uh, are facing right now. And, you know, I'd love to, you've obviously, you've been an operator. I want to get into your career at LinkedIn and some of the things you've done, but, you know, over the course of your career as an operator, as an advisor, as a speaker, as an author, right? You, you've had many different lenses into the evolution of work itself. When you kind of look at work, the world of work today, uh, and kind of contrast that with the world of work that you came into in your career, what are some of the most significant shifts Probably the biggest thing, Lars, and this has really become much more clear to me in the last year or two, is that 
the pace of work has just accelerated. The pace of change, the pace of needing new skills, the, the adoption of new technologies and processes has really put a strain on how organizations uh, are designed. For example, I think most companies that I'm working with and that I used to work with are really designed for a much slower pace of work. Um, you know, production cycles would take years from, you know, design and development and production and testing to shipping. Now, in some cases, there's so many businesses that takes a few hours from someone's brain to the website. And but yet we still have these models of org design and structure around how we think about recruiting and performance management and org design and communication and culture that were built for a much slower pace. They were built for much less turnover. And I think that's probably the biggest thing, you know, that that's the first thing that comes to mind. The second thing that comes to mind is I'm so happy that I am out of the world of operator role uh, now that social media and your employee having so many vehicles to be able to express their <laughs> happiness or frustration than ever before. I mean, oof, I, you know, I can't imagine how hard that is for leaders today because your employee is a public relations department. And that's a different relationship that you have now. Right. With uh, with your staff, because what you're doing, what you're saying, how you're uh, leading is immediately getting spun out uh, through your employees to various sites around the world. And that's that's not something I had to deal with. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting you say that, because I think when you look at uh, how what I consider to be kind of leading CPOs today and how they operate, there a lot of them are masterful at social media. So like you, you have the risks that you mentioned, obviously, you know, it takes one disgruntled employee to uh, take that to social media, right or wrong, and kind of air grievances. Uh, but it's also it, it's also such a unique opportunity, I think, for people leaders to engage with their employees and their teams on social media. And I just, you know, I think there, there, there are some CPUs that really nail that. And I'm just, I'm in awe when I watch them work, especially on platforms like LinkedIn, uh, to just see how they're just regularly responding to their employees, encouraging them, congratulating them, and just, you know, celebrating them in ways that, uh, you know, prior to social media, you just didn't have that same level of access. So it's really, it's really interesting to see kind of both sides of that evolve. That's right. It's almost like performance appraisals used to be my conversation with you, employee, and that's it. Now it's I can give kudos, I can reinforce and share the world, show my leadership style in the course of giving you praise and also having other people recognize my leadership style maybe a little bit more. You're absolutely right. It's super fascinating. You know, and, and on that um, on that subject, one of the really interesting trends that I've seen that is organizationally impacted by this new world of social media is that public relations Think about this, used to sit under marketing, right? Most firms had a PR head under marketing and we had this really interesting moment. And this is just, you know, in the last decade when I was at LinkedIn, we we had a head of PR, uh, Shannon Stubo Brighton, who's amazing. And she was about ready to go out of maternity. And she said, hey, when I come back, I wanna be reporting to the CEO. You know, is that something we could have a discussion around? And so she'd mentioned that to Jeff Weiner, the CEO at the time. And so Jeff and I met and he said, Steve, uh, um, okay, let's talk about this. What are the three biggest things that have happened to LinkedIn in the last, you know, four or five years? Um, I said, well, we had President Obama visit, we had an IPO, and we had uh, a hacking episode. He goes, are those marketing issues or those PR issues? And I said, yeah, it looks like she's going to get promoted <laughs> to work <laughs> for you because that's how impactful your PR and your brand is. As I mean, you know this, you live it, you teach it, you you consult about it, which is, you know, your 
your brand is your recruiting collateral is your um, is your draw uh, as an organization to good talent and that's so important. And it can't be finessed as much in, in a greater transparent world as it used to be. So how do we think about that? You know, like think about, um, you know, we're recording this right after the Academy Awards. Think about like Will Smith's PR team. Like, OK, how do we that just happened? Like, how do we address this thing right now that just happened? The whole world got to see it. And um, so it's a big deal. You know, it's a really big deal for organizations. And I think. Um, you know, NHR has always been in, I think in the last 20 years, the blending of marketing brand and HR has come tighter and tighter as the transparency has increased, right? Yeah. And it's funny, I think, you know, we, we talk about the evolution of the CPO role and, you know, I, I often use the term, you know, the CPO kind of has evolved and expanded to chief pandemic officer. And I got to give <laughs> Tiffany Stevenson credit for that. That's not mine. I can't take credit for that. She, I heard that from her. Um, but now I think it's also uh, in a lot of ways, chief crisis communications officer. And, and you kind of talk about uh, PR dealing with things externally. But I think when you look at just even the last two years from the pandemic to George Floyd's murder, to the insurrection, to Russia's war on the Ukraine. I mean, so many uh, societal and geopolitical things are also taking place where oftentimes the, the head of HR is the person on the front lines of at least kind of messaging internally to employees. Uh, and, and it's beyond, you know, hey, we have these EAP resources or support resources to help you navigate this. But it's like, what is our, what is our stance as a company on this? What are we going to state publicly or not on this? And there's just, there's, I feel like over the last two years, so many layers have just been added on top of the core responsibilities of what traditionally was a CHRO. And that role has just become so much more uh, multifaceted and dynamic as it, as it expands to take on all this additional responsibility. Right. And, and I think that's an extension. It's so fascinating. We could talk about this for hours, but think about this. There are more dimensions of uh, just layers, as you say, impacting the engagement of our workforce out of our control than ever before, right? Like I know more about my coworker than I ever used to, thanks to social media. Um, the awareness of you know issues in society are are you know coming into the the workplace more than ever before. And we've seen a couple of really interesting experiments in the last year. Both Basecamp and Coinbase yeah. develop policies where it, uh, in response to, hey, we're really worried, I, I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt here because I'm not sure that I would have done these policies, but to, to, to sort of try to represent them as objectively as possible, these conversations about society are really distracting from our core obligations as a business. So we're gonna set a policy that while you're here, we're just talking work. We are not gonna talk about society because we're seeing that people are getting blamed, measured, judged, whether they whether they um, participate in those conversations or even if they don't participate, they're getting shamed. So we're going to say no, no, no longer are you going to do that. And if you don't like it, here's your severance package. And that we've never seen that before, where society companies having to make a decision culturally around whether these are topics that are relevant, necessary, you know, constructive or, or, or destructive in our organization. I mean, that's phenomenally fascinating, you know, and then to say, hey, we've taken a big pivot with our culture. So here's a severance package if you don't like it. And some people saying, yeah, I don't like it. I'm out. It's like, whoa. You know? Yeah. Wow. And look, I think I think Basecamp lost almost a third of their employees. Right. When they did that, I think, you know, you know, for Coinbase, uh, you know, crypto as an industry tends to be more libertarian. I think it was perhaps, you know, 
consistent with what people might expect from that type of organization. And, I, you know, I had uh, LJ Brock, a you know, Coinbase chief people officer on just after I actually had recorded a podcast with him uh, a day before Brian Armstrong's blog post on that. And then uh, I was like, hey, could we record a round two? Because <laughs> that there's and, yeah. and, and he graciously came back, you know, two days later and, and recorded it so I could get kind of his perspective. And I think, you know, I'm, they've been really pushing the boundaries around uh, their HR and people policies. I, you know, I view them as a den of innovation on that side. You know, on the apolitical side, you know, again, personally, I don't, I wouldn't make that call. I don't know that I agree with it. They have every right to make it, but I think it does in the case of a company like Basecamp where, you know, that decision seemed to run counter to the culture that they were very publicly building. Uh, and, and again, the result was, you know, people left. And now, you know, more people who uh, self-align with that kind of environment will choose them maybe than did before and, and people who don't won't. But it, it's it's interesting to see how companies, uh, you know, th there isn't a playbook for this and there isn't like a set right or wrong in how you navigate this. But uh, every, every decision has downstream ramifications that impact talent, recruiting, retention, you know, all the things we're talking about. Yeah. And I think this is an evolution that the pandemic has um, really amplified around the personalization of work and the greater awareness we need to have around the psyche of, of our talent. Um, and one size fits all model of HR is over. It's done. It doesn't work. It's not going to be there. And if you want to do that, you can. I think your addressable market for talent is going to be significantly diminished. You know, the organizations that are like, we all are going to work this way when half the organization said, well, we worked a different way and we actually like it more and we're more productive and you're not giving us a business justification, just your comfort level is work this way. That's that's putting pressure on organizations to be more creative. And I think that's net net. That's a really good thing. I think it's really hard for organizations not comfortable with creating value in a more remote universe to, to make the pivot. And that's probably where I'm spending a, a significant amount of my time right now, Lars, is and, and check this out. In the last month, I've had three clients call me and the conversation goes something like this. Steve, we're middle management in you know XYZ Fortune 100 company. Our senior executives want us all go back to work. They want us to recruit faster. And everyone we're talking to doesn't want to work in an office. So we're not going to be able to meet our recruiting goals. And we don't want to go back to the office. Can you help us learn how to better <laughs> influence our leadership that that's not necessary? And I was like, what? I'm being... You're, you're asking me to help you frame a better argument with your leadership around you know, getting their comfort level up that remote, you know, um, a remote framework could be more you know, successful than all in person. And that's just I've, I've, I was like, wow, I was really taken aback by that. I did, a, I did a quick TikTok about that the other day. I was like, can you believe this is happening in these organizations? And I can because so many leaders are not sure they can create value in this new world. And some of them, hey, there's no margin for error. Like we can't do it because um, there's too much at risk. So they don't. They're going very, very slowly in, in making that turn. And I and I understand it and I appreciate it. And that's what I was trying to tell the people. It's like they're not saying go back because they don't like you. They're not listening to you. They're afraid. They are afraid. And you need to raise their comfort level, right? And that's so. Let's talk a strategy on how you might do that.
how do you do that, right? Like, I'm not looking to, uh, uh, you know, pull free consulting out of you because that's how people engage you. But like, because yeah. I'm sure there's listeners and viewers right now who are in a similar position and, you know, they're maybe getting pressure from their executives to, uh, you know, to come back to a more rigid, you know, return to workplace plan that their employees have clearly articulated they don't want. Um, and obviously that's a recipe for disaster from a, a retention and recruiting perspective. So are there any like, you know, when you think of key key takeaways, like, hey, these are just some points that tend to resonate with CEOs in the C-suite uh, around that, that might, you know, cause them to, to rethink some of their, um, you know, their ambitions around aggressively returning to an office. Sure, sure. I mean, every organization is feeling the talent pinch right now, every organization. And I'm trying to tell them you don't have a recruiting problem. You have a creativity block. There are so many ways of creating value without having to own an employee in an office. Uh, and so now's the moment. And so what I would say is, and every time I've got to influence a CEO, the first thing that you do is say, who does that CEO listen to the most? Um, there's usually a company, for example, when I was at LinkedIn, whenever we would go something with a new idea to Jeff Wiener and say, well, what is Salesforce doing and what's Facebook doing? And so I learned pretty quickly before I would even go in and say, well, this is what Facebook's doing and this is what Salesforce is doing and we're not. And there must be some merit to it because he had respect for the, the organizational you know, success that they were experiencing. So that's the first thing I would do is say, well, whose ear, um, um, who has the ear of the CEO? And I would go to those people and say, hey, do you see? And the second thing is just data. Here's the data. Every executive search firm right now that I'm speaking to is telling me the first question every senior candidate asks is, can I do this remotely? Now, it doesn't mean that they it's a non-negotiable. That's a tell. And the tell is, do I have more freedom and autonomy? Is the company more evolved in their thinking around being open to new talent strategies? And so that's an important. And the biggest thing is, if you want to be able to draw the greatest talent that's out there, they're saying loud and clear, freedom, autonomy, and independence is the biggest part of their compensation stack that was used to be a nice to have. Now it's right there next to base and bonus is freedom, autonomy, and flexibility when and where I can do my stuff. And as, as we talked about earlier, a few minutes earlier, I mean, the merger of home and work was a hostile takeover by the pandemic. It's here. It's happened. So let's learn how we can optimize that and start to come to the table with let's look at some other organizations that are experiencing some success. The shortfall in the cell, Lars, is honestly, there is no benchmark now. And I'm trying to tell this to organizations, stop trying to benchmark. No one's figured it out yet. Now you want to be the benchmark. So, and that's uncomfortable, right? Because they're all used to, well, what are they doing? What are these people doing? A lot of people I say are experimenting right now. It's the, it's the era of experimentation. And this is why um, you and I talked about this earlier. One of the fun parts of working with technology companies is the openness to experiment generally is greater. Why? Because they're software engineers and that's how they create. They experiment, A-B test all the time. And so the receptivity of trying new things is greater. And some of the organizations that are not as heavily tech intensive, that experimentation DNA is a little lighter, right? And so th those would be some of my recommendations. You'll find the influencer of the, the chief executive, try to influence that person, it may be easier and get that person to help you, but also supply, um, you know, supply them with data as much as you can, because there are, I mean, the candidates are speaking super loud right now. Today in the news, uh, you know, before we got on air, the ninth month in a row where 2% of the workforce, 9 million people in the United States voluntarily resigned. And I don't think it's going to stop. I mean, in the article, this is a Business Insight article, talks about it's the new norm. 
you know? And, and so, you know, people who used to be, okay, they look the other way because there's a few things that weren't favorable to their, you know, perspective on work. They're now saying, no, I, I, I'm not, I don't have the tolerance to deal with the stuff that I don't like as much because I have more choice. And they're taking advantage of that. And that is putting pressure on the specialty industries that have never had to fight for talent before where this is happening. Traditional HR and learning systems are largely rooted in legacy mindsets and practices. They're not equipped to keep pace with the dynamic times we've experienced since the events of 2020 and beyond. That's why I launched the Amplify Accelerator. The Amplify Accelerator is a platform for connecting, developing, and supporting the next generation of people leaders. Designed to support continuous learning and build capabilities and connections, the Accelerator helps modern people leaders build the necessary skills to successfully navigate this new world of work. The flagship of the Amplify Accelerator is the Cohort Program. These peer-based learning courses are designed to help you become a more confident people leader, armed with a new global peer community and a toolkit full of actionable advice, resources, templates, and more. Cohort students engage in a mix of synchronous and asynchronous learning designed to fit into the schedules of today's people leaders. You'll also learn from world-class guest instructors including Katie Burke, Caitlin Holloway, Pat Waters, Claude Silver, AJ Thomas, Tiffany Stevenson, and so many more. Ready to invest in yourself? Learn more at AmplifyTalent.com slash cohorts. I mean, it's fascinating. There was a McKinsey study last year uh, kind of digging in the great resignation. And one of the data points that just jumped off the graph to me was that uh, they surveyed employees who uh, you know, volunteered that they were probably going to be you know, uh, looking in the next three to six months. And of that set of employees, uh, 66% of them would be willing to leave their job without another job lined up. And that, you know, that I saw that and I was like, okay, well, how, you know, there's a level of this that you can't you can't respond to. You can't retain everybody. You shouldn't try. You should try to create a great environment that attracts and holds talent. Uh, but you should also realize that you're not going to be able to hold all of your talent all the time. But just seeing the amount of people who are actually saying, you know what, like it's my time, and I know I'm confident enough in my skills in this market, I'll find something even if I don't have an offer in hand. When I'm ready to go, I'm ready to go. And so, you know, that that level of willingness to depart in that scenario, uh, I don't think we've seen before. And so it's uh, it's just fascinating to kind of have that additional context into what we're experiencing. Um, I want to go back to LinkedIn because, you know, you, you've done a lot of things in your career, but, you know, one of the your formative roles was really helping scale LinkedIn from 400 employees to 4,000 uh, and kind of, you know, going through their IPO and the, that key phase of growth for them. Looking back on that experience, you know, what's something maybe that you learned at the end of that journey that you you wish you could have gone back in time and told yourself at the beginning? Uh, one of the things that massively frustrated me was the heartbeat of any organization, which is your executive staff meeting. Over the time that I was like in the first two and a half years, we every few months were experimenting with a different structure and it drove me crazy. I was like, why doesn't the CEO and the CFO, Steve and Jeff, who are really you know, the core of how we're going to do that meeting. Like, why don't they just pick something and let's run with it? And they're like, okay, we're going to do it this time of day. We're going to do it for this length of time. We're going to do it this day of the week. We're going to invite these, these people. Who's going to own the agenda? What is the agenda? We must have switched that meeting up probably 25 times, Lars. And finally, after about two and a half years, we set on the format and the structure. And it was phenomenal. It was incredibly helpful to, to us, 
in terms of how we ran that organization. And at the time, I'm like, what is wrong? And it wasn't until I honestly left Lars, I was like, man, that was brilliant. It was brilliant that we experimented because we weren't, if we were told this is the methodology, I don't think it would have stuck. But we all had input into it. Should you invite your lieutenants, you know, to the executive staff once in a while? If you're not in town, should you bring someone in? Should we uh, organize the time so that the, you know, the geographies of India and Europe can can be included? We had to think about all these things. And a lot of people said, well, what was it? And it's like, that's not the point. You know, what the framework (laughs) was. The point was the inclusiveness of everyone in that team trying to give input, you know, like, uh, and, and what we came up with was a really beautiful model of just what are the company's priorities and do they have the right leadership? Are they on track and are they resourced effectively? And we would begin every staff meeting. What's the most important priority in the company? Do they have the right leadership? Are they tracking and are they staffed appropriately? And that helped us tell people, no, we can't fund your project because three key projects aren't funded uh, or they're not performing and they need more staff. Right. And so that was really great. But, man, it frustrated me at the time. I'm like, this is really um, this is like, you know, high school, like this is Bush League. Like we should be, you know, we should be more on top of our game. And it was actually really brilliant uh, in the end. And I and I was really critical of Jeff. And I told him at the end, I was like, man, that was something I really criticized you for. (laughs) Uh, And now I see the brilliance. And I don't know if that was part of your master plan, but it really worked out great. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting how the benefit of hindsight um, can allow you to see things through a different light, uh, right? When you're experiencing them, obviously, you know, a, a cause of great frustration. And in hindsight, when you're a bit removed from like the iteration of that period, you could actually realize how, you know, going through that process is how you landed in that end state, which is the the ideal end state. So. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I, I want to ask you, you know, one of the things that LinkedIn was famous for is their tour of duty program. Um, and if you haven't read uh, The Alliance, uh, you should definitely get your hands on that book. I think it's probably one of the most formative uh, books on recruiting that, that I've read. And and I've seen this, you know, I've done a lot of work with LinkedIn over the years. And so I've seen this up, up close, um, the way people take advantage of the tour of duty program. And, you know, for those of you that may not be familiar with it, you know, the general idea is that you're, you're hired into a role um, for a, a general agreement that it's going to be like a two to three year role. And at the end of that two to three year role, you're going to sit down with your manager and you're going to reevaluate, right? Uh, is this still what you want to be doing? Is this still challenging you? Are you still growing? Are you still contributing at the level that the business needs you to at that point, right? So you have that honest kind of both-sided um, discussion. And through that, you can determine what your growth path is. Maybe it's continuing in the role. Maybe it's moving into another team altogether, which happens a lot at LinkedIn. Uh, or maybe it's, it's you know, the, the consensus is it's time to leave the organization. Um, your next step is not going to be here. And I'd love, obviously, you, you are involved in, in managing, architecting, orchestrating that. What was that like internally? Like as a CHRO of LinkedIn in an environment that really is based on that level of, of, of mobility and, and honesty around career conversations, what, what was that like to manage? Um, this is really interesting. I've never been asked that question and I'm gonna open the cupboard here to uh, a cupboard of darkness that people, you know, it may surprise some people. So that strategy, that thinking around career and job and the relationship between employer and employee isn't something that I, I could say every one of our leaders was subscribed to. Okay. Reed was there. I don't, I don't know that Jeff was really there. And I don't, I especially don't think our engineering and product teams were there, but 
Here we are, a budding organization that is competing for talent with against people who could pay more, benefit more, out perk us, out, you know, work environment us, and we're getting slaughtered. And we were like, oh my gosh, if the world knows that we don't know how to recruit and we're LinkedIn, like that's not <laughs> news that we want out there. We better figure this out. And so, you know, when you're when you're faced with that urgency of we have to solve the talent problem because we knew most people were going to LinkedIn through a Google search. And we knew that Google was aware of that. And if Google says, hey, we're going to redirect you to over here to the Google career page, you know, or the Google, you know, help you find a job page or Google circles, which they came up with, which was a real direct threat that we spent, you know, weeks sort of like, oh, is this, you know, should we be worried about this or not? We had to be creative. And so I'd like to say, hey, weren't we brilliant coming up with this tour duty concept? That was almost a necessity for us to say, hey, you know, we've, we've, we've got an obligation to be more creative because we're LinkedIn, we're the professional network. So let's experiment. And one of the things we had, I call them career bursts. It wasn't just two or three years. Some cases, we'll, we'll send you to Australia for a few weeks. And that's, that's a new experience for you. But it, it took away, I think, what a lot of organizations I've worked in have had, which is the, you know, leader thinking like, you work for me. You work for the company, you work for me, like you're my property. And that really creates a lot of blockage around talent sharing. And in an environment where people can literally go next door to tomorrow, if they're not happy, you got to come up with something that's meaningful. And so this started to evolve and we started to see, you know, people's energy levels pick up when they do new things. Um, and that's something that I'm trying to help people see, like, you know, you're worried about this great, greater um, turnover rate than you're used to. But I got to tell you, when have you had the most energy doing the same thing for five years or doing something really new and scary? And they always say new and scary. I said, OK, but your org design is smothering that from happening, you know, and so maybe embracing a higher velocity turnover isn't such a bad thing. So when we started to see new people doing new things and the energy compensating for maybe the lack of experience that we thought we would need in certain roles, we started to get a lot more comfortable with it, Lars. And then we also started to have leaders like Mike Gamson, our incredible sales leader, who's now CEO of Relativity. He would begin every interview in the sales organization. They're half our company, okay, the sales organization. So they were growing like crazy. Mike would start every interview with, so when you leave LinkedIn, what do you want to be doing? We would begin with the end. We know you're going to leave. Right. So let's let's agree that we're going to contribute together, collaborate to get you where you want to go. And if it's staying here five years, awesome. If it's going in a year or two, awesome. But let's agree to make it the best possible you know, arrangement that we possibly can. So that's a little bit of the, you know, the iterative process. It wasn't like some grand plan. Hey, we're going to go with this tour duty. Uh -uh. It started to evolve and play. And I, you know, I would say probably half my leaders were not with that program, man, because they're all from. The, you know, you got to stay a long time and loyalty means a longer commitment. And I think we, most people came around and were pretty, pretty receptive to it over time. Yeah, I mean, it's, I feel like that, you know, that setup is a good transition to Workquake because it, it's around like rethinking work itself and, and, and helping, you know, separate ourselves maybe from some of these past norms of, of work and tenure and, you know, you should be happy to work in my company and my job. And, you know, uh, again, like that ownership mentality that I think a lot of hiring managers had is hard to shake, but it, it speaks to the bigger, you know, kind of macro trends that you explore in the book around just like shifting from industrial era constructs of work to something much more flexible and tailored. And as we look at hybrid and we look at uh, looking after employees, mental health and burnout and just so many things are, are on the table right now that weren't on the table 
three years ago. And as you were writing the book, like what was your, where did the spark for the book come from? Because I know you've been working in that, you know, kind of vanguard and evolution of the world of work for years, but at what point did you say, you know what, this is a book, I've got to get this down. Or is it really uh, perceptive? I think the LinkedIn experience really shaped me. I was a big company refugee, carrying a lot of baggage around frustration, working in big organizations, and wasn't really sure why I had that frustration. And then joining LinkedIn and having to question every assumption around uh, org structure because we're building it from nothing. And I don't know if anyone who's here has been in an organization where you walk in the door, literally my first day on the job at LinkedIn, and uh, the secretary, the CEO is like, hey, my grandfather just died. What's our bereavement policy? I'm like, I look to the left, look to the right. There's no binder. There's no policy. I'm like, mm, three days. How's that work? She's like, yeah, that's, that's fair. Thank you. And she walks out the door like when you strip it to its core and you really have to question, why do we do performance reviews? What, what's the validation of that? Or how many levels should we build in the organization? Why should we build it that way? It really brings a healthy, constructive perspective to things that you've just been taking for granted your whole career. And so, you know, stepping away from LinkedIn for a few years, I started to get some perspective and say, wow, this a lot that I think is broken, but I don't think anyone has tried to connect the dots as to why there could be a better way. And so I think that was the inspiration was really just, I think a lot of people are feeling frustrated inside organizations and professionally. And I wanted to build a, a, a conversation based on some trends that I thought would, you know, let's elevate it to have more honest conversations, you know, and let's not start off an employment relationship with the, with something that we both know is wrong, which is I'm going to promise to keep you here a long time and you're going to promise to commit to me a long time, which we both know we're not going to follow through on. But let's let's build our relationship based on something which is not really you know realistic. And so I'm saying let's 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 have healthier conversations such as. We both know you're going to go at some point, so let's talk about how we can get you to wherever it is you want to go, right? And so that that was sort of the the impetus for me. And using some, you know, I use a bunch of stories in the book from my own experience and from other people who were kind enough to share them with me to try to say, you know, you know, that I don't think the future, the more fluid world of work, is as scary as it could be, and there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, using some of the the experiences that we had from LinkedIn. Well, let's talk about like this new world of work. You know, you, you, you lay a great foundation at Workquake uh, about just all the things that are changing and kind of what's possible. You have a lot of these conversations, as you mentioned earlier, with, you know, CEOs and business leaders who are on the front lines and, you know, obviously CHOs and CPOs as well. When you think about this new world of work that we're building, what, what gets you most excited? Um, probably a few things. One, the greater personalization of work, the greater, um, you know, recognition that we have about each other. I think the the massive pressure on that fact that every culture has changed. I've worked with clients that say, you know, help us keep our culture. I said, I can't help you keep your culture. Your culture has changed. Now, what I can do is help you keep culture a competitive advantage because you recognize it's important to you. But listen, how people communicate and where they are, that's so exciting to me. You know, similar to what I just said, I think it's been, you know, everyone hit pause, every organization, every professional has had to hit pause and revisit what's really important to them. And that's super scary for organizations. It's super exciting for individuals, but to have organizations wake up and realize, and some of them don't want to realize this, everyone's looking at their world differently. And everyone in their world is looking at their world differently in their families and their friendship circles. And so people are going to make different decisions. And that net net is a beautiful thing, but it's really scary if you want predictable, stable, reliable outcomes. 
using models that used to work and that don't work right now. So I'm really excited by that. It's going to be hard. Don't get me wrong. This is not an easy time, right? But I think that the where we're heading towards is a is a really cool place. And um, for my kids, I have uh, three teenage boys and two teenage stepdaughters. And the choices that they have and the visibility to what's possible um, professionally is phenomenal. And, and I think it's only going to get it's only going to get better. And there's a there's a double edged sword with that, because with choice comes also with greater awareness of choice comes greater awareness of maybe I made the wrong choice. you know, And yeah, that yeah. we haven't reconciled yet. You know, it's like, why is just why is engagement so low when people have so much more choice and, and information to make the greatest career choices ever? Because we have more more things we could read that make us feel maybe we made the wrong choice. Um, and that's and that's super hard. But yeah, there's a there's a lot that I get excited about. And also this migration right now, which I don't have the data to firmly back up, but I know it's happening of great talent moving to gig and moving to independent contractors to own more of their destiny. That's a really interesting thing um, that I think is going to net people feeling more in control of their of their universe. And and I think that, you know, leading to the new four day work weeks or the the nine days of every two weeks, that creativity that organizations are going to be forced to face, I think is going to net a real positive for for engagement in the long run. I mean, it's, it's, it's exciting. Uh, for some, I'm sure it's scary. Uh, the, the, you know, the playbook is being written as we speak and we're holding the pens. So it's, uh, it's exciting to see how it will all come together. Um, Steve, quickly, before we jump in the lightning round, uh, if people want to uh, get your book, where's the best place for them to find Workquake? Uh, books available everywhere. We've got it on Audible. We've got it uh, in bookstores. If it's not there, just ask them to, uh, to order it. Amazon, um, my publish my publisher uh, mascot books you can you can find it there uh, we're going to be releasing it in a digital format in spanish soon uh and so and i know you know this from from releasing your book lars but you know probably the digital downloads just just is probably the greater forum for for sales uh for my book so yeah great well, uh, I really enjoyed the chat. I feel like we could go for at least another hour, uh, but I won't do that to you. I will take you the lightning round, just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. So uh, we always start with music. Uh, I'm checking out your Spotify playlist. Uh, who will I learn are your top three artists? Oh, gosh, uh, probably Billie Eilish. Uh, embarrassingly, Neil Diamond uh, will be on there. Uh, and the Killers are probably the, the three. <laughs> That is, uh, that is the rage. I, I appreciate that. Uh, what was your latest uh, binge watch on TV? Uh, latest binge watch. I'm in it right now. We crashed. And if you want to know what it's like in a startup, you got to watch that. It's an, on Apple right now. It's phenomenally interesting. You know, for, for HR people who are getting, you know, venom from people like HR, you know, you guys are just, you know, you're an evil department. Go look at that show from the perspective of, do you think anyone in HR was going to do anything of merit with Adam Newman running that organization. It's super interesting, super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that is on my to watch list. So <laughs> I'll, I'll be checking that You'll out actually it. on a flight on Friday. So <laughs> um, next up, uh, we're shifting careers. Uh, you've been an author, you can't be that. You've been a CHRO, you can't be that. You've been an advisor, you also can't be that. Mm -hmm. uh, what would you be doing if you were uh, kind of pivoting your career right now? Uh, I would actually probably be a high school or middle school basketball coach. I've coached all my boys um, and they, you know, they were young enough that they liked me uh, doing that. 
And I love it. Absolutely love it. And so that's probably what I do. Uh, maybe I, I would be interested in being an assistant coach at sort of the college or community college level. But I just I love that. And everything I love about HR is everything I love about, you know, coaching sports. Yeah. Um, last question for you, Steve. Who is one HR leader who you admire and why? Um, I'm going to go a little untraditional with my with my pick here and, and reference someone that I spoke to earlier. Uh, he's not an HR person by title, but he's an HR person more so than any executive I've ever worked with. And that's Mike Gamson, Mike CEO of Relativity.com. He was our head of sales. I have never in my career had the head of sales be out in front of me on culture in a good way. And Mike would run his sales conferences talking about values, not talking about quotas, not talking about the number or the bogey, whatever it was. Uh, and he really, really pushed me and pushed our leadership team to be thoughtful. And another reason that he was such a powerful force for LinkedIn, it's a lot of people don't, re- don't appreciate this. 90% of my field offices were sales staff. And Jeff and I, the CEO uh, at the time, we would go tour these locations from time to time and we would come back and go, man, that culture is like cooler then headquarters, like what is going on? And that was Mike's leadership that he really put a premium on making culture a competitive advantage. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you sharing your your work, your book, uh, and your ideas with us. This is uh, and thanks again for the work you're doing, kind of leading the charge on this new world of work. It's exciting, and uh, uh, those ideas matter. So I just appreciate your leadership on that. Thanks, and right back at you, Lars. Thank you for having me on the show. I listen to your podcast a lot. Um, I haven't listened to the one. Uh, with uh, with uh, Coinbase and, and LJ. So I'm going to definitely, as soon as we're done, I'm going to go listen to that one. But thank you too for what you're doing and look forward to more conversations. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Redefining HR. For more information on the podcast, past episodes, future guests, the Redefining HR book or free resources, be sure to check out redefininghr.com. And if you dig this podcast, why don't you share it with your CEO, your executive team, and your friends to help them discover what Redefining HR is all about. If you really dig this podcast, I'd love for you to leave a review on whatever podcast delivery vehicle your ears prefer. See you next week.